Welcome to the other side of midnight, Richard C. Hoagland's The Other Side of Midnight. Thank you for joining us from all around this beautiful planet. We have an exciting show tonight called The Enigmatic Therapium Drilling Down No Bull. And our special guest is Ben Van Kirkwick. My co-host tonight is Timothy Saunders, and this is Kinthea, the producer, filling in for Richard C. Hoagland. So our guest, Ben, uh, is an Australian researcher, writer, and content creator, now living in the United States. He runs the UnchartedX.com website and the associated YouTube channel and produces podcasts and short-form documentaries on various topics dealing with ancient mysteries and the new scientific work that has a bearing on the story of human history. After 20 years and a successful multinational career in IT, along with a Bachelor of Science from James Cook University, Ben brings a unique perspective when investigating the evidence for ancient high technology and casts such mysterious mysteries in the light of many new discoveries like those for the Younger Dryas Cataclysm and the extension of the human civilization timeline. A lifelong student and fan of history, Ben has been traveling the world for decades and has filmed at many ancient sites, as well as interviewing and interacting with many of the leading authors and researchers working in this field. Welcome, Ben. Good to have you join us tonight. Thank you, Kinthea, and hello, Tim. It's a it's a real pleasure to be here. I thank you for the invitation. Well, I good found morning. it. Good morning, Ben. Yeah, good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Timothy is joining us from Turkey. So if you hear any roosters in the background, that's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, they've already started, so um, I'm sure they'll, they'll cut in fairly soon when they f- find the appropriate moment. But um, yes, good evening to everyone else on the other side of the planet. Timothy, yeah. I'm going to ask you to take the helm for a moment while I take care of that task we talked about. <laughs> okay, well, I, I do appreciate that task, and thank you very much once again. So uh, <laughs> I just sent a couple of uh, images to Kim Thea to add to my section with the radio with pictures, uh, which we can perhaps get to later. But um, in the meantime, what we can do is to to just get started, get settled, put the foundations down, and... Uh, you know, it, it, it's all about uh, in, what I'm sort of terming is internet exploring. Uh, there are a lot of internet <laughs> explorers out there, um, and some are very, very interesting. And one caught my eye uh, not long ago, actually, uh, and that was Ben and uh, his, his YouTube channel, uh, Uncharted X. And I started watching one, and I was thinking, okay, well, you know, this is this is interesting. So far, so good. Then I watched another, 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 <laughs> and I think I've watched all of them now, Ben. So, um, well, I, thank you. I've, uh, I've really enjoyed your work. I appreciate your diligent sort of research, and what I also love is the fact that you're, you're, you know, not just an internet explorer, but you're a real life explorer as well. You've actually been to these sites. You've actually taken video there. You, you've experienced them, and you convey yes. your, you know, your your experiences with, with us. So. How Thank you. Yeah. You set, how long ago did you set up uh, Uncharted X? It's actually fairly recently. This this channel is only several months old now, but I have been 
preparing for it, if you like, for several years, and I've had a lifelong passion for history. That's that's uh, something that I've always carried with me. But it's only really been in the last several years I uh, I have had the chance to explore. Uh, throughout my career in IT, I've done a lot of travel over the years to a lot of places, and I've had some uh, really interesting experiences along the way. But several years ago, I actually quit my job with the intention of focusing myself um, specifically into this field. Uh, you know, overall, I'm looking to investigate the roots of our history, the story of our history, and in particular, in the light of a lot of the new evidence that's come up around it, um, and not just specifically, you know, in the historical fields like archaeology or Egyptology, but the ones that come to us through things like paleoclimatology, genetics, study of DNA, all of these things that affect that overall story of history uh, that, that, that have an impact on it. And, you know, I, I had some, had the opportunity to travel with a few of the leading researchers and authors during that period. And my curiosity for all of these mysteries that I was seeing and the things that you, that you read in many of the books, it just grew and grew. And I think that you can, a lot of this, this field, it's a complicated field when you start looking at history and what the, the, the true roots of our history are. And it's buried in a lot of books and a lot of years of research. And I, I really felt like there was a space where you could you could take some of that information that was buried in these books and transform that into kind of a new media approach uh, and then and try and share that with a wider audience. So I've been doing that for several years. Uncharted X itself is, has been up and running for only, I think, four or five months now. Um, but the response has been quite good. So, Well, excellent. I mean, that, that takes... You know, a fair amount of organization. I guess you have uh, a quiet place at home, and do you have sort of, you know, a reasonably good microphone and a video camera and so on to do streaming? I mean, you, you must have, you know, uh, it's not something you just randomly open the top of your laptop and just say, right, here we go. Right. What I can hear between the lines is you're on a mission, you know, you're researching uh, the sites you're going to, or you're looking at sort right. of speculation, you're looking at fact, or what we, we perceive as fact and you know what I very much like is, is the the dance you do between you know what, what is established fact I guess or perceived fact and some speculation and uh, that's exactly where I think a lot more drilling down needs to be done yeah indeed I I agree that's and that's exactly where I'm trying to toe the line I mean ultimately I'm I'm my background is technology and IT and I have uh, computer science. I mean, I, I started in engineering. I almost went into the history field at university. My mother was a history teacher. I've probably got her to thank for my interest in the subject at this, you know, the small town in Australia where I grew up with one high school. She was the history teacher. Uh, so, you know, I've always had that as a, as an influence in my life, but then I, I, my other passion was computers and I went in that direction, which has certainly helped me with things like production value, because there is, there's absolutely a, a uh, you know a night and day difference when you can when you can put out high quality material and that's always been uh, a goal of mine and I think along with trying to expose some of the I guess more detailed aspects and the the, the in depth uh, contradictions that we find in the field of history as well as the new scientific work that should be affecting history the other component to that in particular in today's day and age is really the proliferation of very, very high quality consumer grade filming equipment. Now you can go and get yourself a stabilized camera that films in 4k and you can achieve professional results now, uh, just, you know, as a, as a, as a regular consumer, you don't need to buy 
professional grade equipment in the tens of thousands of dollars and, and, and movie, you know, hire a movie crew to go and do production. I think you can get to these sites. So I was really, and I've been traveling to these sites for so many years and filming for many years. And I just, I, I really wanted to be able to share that a, a new, a fresh look at some of these places an in-depth look at some of these places in particular places like the Serapium with a wider audience and then combine that with some, I like to think of it as logical and scientific analysis of the evidence that we see and take a look at how that actually contradicts with the, with the orthodox story of history. In, indeed. But before we go in there, because I, mean, I think we have, we have sure. a huge amount of material to talk about, but also the Serapium is not the only site that you've, uh, you've mm. visited or, or talked about. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot to talk about. I'm sure we're going to burst through the end of the show. Um, <laughs> but just, just to get things uh, sort of on, on, a, on a level playing field from the beginning, I mean, you, you were in Australia. Is there, or on reflection, okay, let me just fill in a few more dots as well. I mean, one of the other areas you talked about is, is the Hunger Dryas. Um, right. bombardment, which is probably a you know a, a planet-changing event that uh, has been reported by more and more people now. Also, uh, Graham yes. Hancock and also uh, Randall Carlson. And uh, Randall Carlson's been uh, a guest on with Richard on the show before. Yeah. And in the future, we hope to uh, have Graham on board sometime. Um, but uh, you know, the hunger dryas looks like it's not like a, a localized event. I don't mean in no. the in, in the, the secondary effects, um, but the it looks like there are more bombardment by uh, outer space objects. It, I think it was it in Greenland recently. There was a crater found. Indeed, yeah. So, so the it's an interesting um, it's an interesting perspective because one of the I, I would just even to connect another little dot here is that when we think about history, we do tend to term history and the study of it as a, as a science, but it's there are, there are hard and soft sciences, I like to say, in, you know, hard science might be chemistry or physics, where you have a scientific method, you can do an ex a hypothesis experiment result cycle, but you don't really have that when it comes to studying the past and, and history and archaeology and truth, they're probably closer to things like language studies and art studies, you are, you're constantly trying to piece together your best picture of the past based on the evidence you have in front of you. And the analogy I like to use to describe it, it's, it's, it's like an ongoing court case that really never ends. And, and the court's uh, duty is to just continually evaluate the evidence to try and put together the best, best picture of the truth as they see it. And I think that's very much the case with history. It's not, it's not a static picture. And I think we're, we're sold history a little bit today as if it's, you know, we, we understand what's happened and there aren't any mysteries here to go and investigate when it comes to some of these ancient uh, civilizations and you know we are we're a direct straight line from the stone age of you know nine ten thousand years ago to today's civilization and that goes through you know the ancient sumerians egyptians etc right up until us but in the last 20 years there's been a tremendous amount of new scientific discoveries and a lot of work that's come from really adjacent fields to archaeology and the his historical fields themselves and one of those has been paleoclimatology and the discovery of the Younger Dryas cataclysm, which was this, uh, if people are interested in this field, I'm sure they've, they're sure, familiar with please. it or they've heard of it. But it's, you know, this is something that happened 12,800 years ago. And we know about it from several different sources at this point. One of the uh, most important sources is something that this, something we call these ice core samples that have come from both Greenland into the glacier in Greenland and Antarctica. And 
what they do, and in particular in Greenland is the example I, I know the best, but uh, they, they took several years to essentially drill down through miles of ice in these glaciers to get right down to the bedrock and take out core samples, like a, a, a core of this ice that goes all the way down. And you can go back in time by analysing these layers of ice. And in the case of Greenland, it goes back some 200,000 years. And in Vostok and Antarctica, I think it goes back closer to 400,000 years. And every year when the snow lays down a layer of snow and it gets compressed and turned into ice, we can analyse those layers of ice in the ice core sample and look at things like oxygen isotopes, determine things like levels of CO2 in the atmosphere, global temperatures, trends. There's a lot of scientific data that comes out of that. And in the last 20 years, since this has been done, we have been getting increasingly better and better and better at analysing these ice core samples. And to the point now where we can look at particular data layers in this ice and pinpoint particular events down to almost a, to a week, you know, not just a year or a decade or a century, but we can go as far as like it's accurate to within a week. So if you look at some of the graphs from these ice core samples, and in particular, the, the one that's of interest is the global temperature, or at least the, the temperature over Greenland uh, as it goes back in time, you can see that we have been through just uh, just absolutely cataclysmic ups and downs, massive, massive swings in temperature that we have not, I mean, we have really have not seen on the planet since. And this was, this was something that occurred uh, in, uh, in a period about 12,800 years ago, which happens to be the end of the last ice age, or it's the end of the glacial maximum and the, the end of the Pleistocene era. Um, this was around 12,800 years ago. We went net from Pleistocene into the Holocene, and it's really been a very stable and relatively calm climate ever since. We have certainly never seen anything like what happened at the Younger Dryas. Now, there's been a lot of speculation as to what caused these tremendous uh, swings in temperature. So we were coming up out of the last glacial maximum, and the Pleistocene era is about 2 million, er uh, 2 million years old. And during that period, you know, we, we go up from glacial maximum into an interglacial period. We're actually in an interglacial period in an ice age right now. And we were slowly coming up on a, on a regular warming path out of that. And then all of a sudden something happened where it just, where, where the temperature almost immediately plunged down to the, the depths of glacial cold across the, the planet. I'm talking a massive swing in temperature. And it was a, 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 an, a the depths of this ice age. And it, it lasted for about a thousand years. And then all of a sudden we got blasted out of that and it came up 11,600 years ago and sort of returned us to this gradual warming path. And this also coincides with the extinction of the megafauna in the Northern Hemisphere and most, most, most well-known, probably the North American and European megafauna, things like mammoths, saber-toothed tigers, the giant sloths, the, you know, the giant camels and so many others, uh, as well as um, many other species. And you, you, you have some other sources of data that sort of clued us into like something really, really bad happened to the planet at this period. Uh, and there's, there's been a lot of work done in the last 20 years from a lot of different scientific groups to analyse this. And one group in particular that has done a tremendous amount of work is a group called the, the Comet Research Group. And they have produced a, a long list of papers. It's all peer-reviewed science. This isn't like it's not novels and books. It is This is peer-reviewed science. It's, it's stuff that's being fought in that academic battleground, which is a really slow process. But in particular, the last seven or eight years, more and more scientists have been coming on board with this idea that something cataclysmic happened in this younger driest period. And it looks like it was the most 
it was the biggest object to hit the planet in about five million years. And, you know, we've got information from sedimentary samples from all around the world in more than 50 mm. sites that show, ben, you know, a, yeah. Ben, this, this is absolutely fascinating. I, I, <laughs> it, this is great because we're inviting our listeners to listen to the Serapium and now we have the bonus of the hunger dryers, which is actually <laughs> just, just to go back to my original question, um, the, sure. you were in Australia. And right. What I was going to say was, is, do you think there is any, I mean, on reflection, do you think there's any sort of evidence of what we may term ancient civilizations in Australia? I mean, you know, with this hunger dryas event, which seems mm -hmm. to uh, have brought the planet into a, you know, a, a southern cold spell, which brought ice above North America down to, I don't know where it is, is it Florida or somewhere like that? Or where? Yeah, it, so it actually is a contradiction. It melted the glaciers as well as lowered temperatures, so it coincides with the sea level rise. And this is consistent yes. with a giant impact to the ice, to the glacial ice sheet. Yeah. But yeah, we, we, we can get into that in some more information. But essentially, essentially, it raised a lot of ancient um, evidence or evidence of any potential ancient civilizations in the continents of North America. Right. Obviously, Australia is on the other, other hemisphere completely. Wait. Do you think there's any evidence of ancient uh, civilizations sort of going back you know, beyond the Aboriginal period? or do you think, you know, is there anything that you, you, you was right between your eyes or right between your eyes, right under your nose, uh -huh. shall we say? In Australia? From the continent, in Australia, from the continent you left. And ironically, now you're on a different continent looking at I am. a different hemisphere. But do you think on reflection what you've learned, is there something we will learn or uncover in the future in I Australia? I, I think it's it's possible there are a couple of and it's it's a little difficult to to tell there hasn't been a whole lot of investigation done but there are some examples of potentially megalithic walls in Australia and um, there and and also New Zealand for that for that for that matter but the the Aboriginal culture traces its its own roots back you know fifty thousand years and they have been I think pretty much through that period mostly in the in the the hunter gatherer um, sort of technological level if you like and they. I, it's certainly a possibility, but one thing I'd say is that the Younger Dryas wasn't wasn't something that affected just the Northern Hemisphere. It was this was the thing that raised sea levels 400 feet around the world, and it was yeah. and in fact one of the latest papers from this group looks specifically at the impact of the Younger Dryas in the Southern Hemisphere, in this case Chile and the, the southern tip of South America, and it and you know it 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 still shows this like 80 percent of the megafauna was wiped out. It stopped plant life. It changed the climate dramatically. So it was. This was a, this 10 million square miles of land around the world was inundated in a short period of time, and the entire planet went into something like a nuclear winter for for a, a good long period of time. There's not a whole lot of evidence of of megalithic work in terms of the things that we see in other traditional sites in in those areas like Australia and New Zealand. There's certainly a lot of people looking into it, and there's a lot of really interesting things. And I'd love to see some more you know mainstream scientific evidence being looked at and 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 people taking a closer look at those sites they typically it doesn't happen because because again these are things that don't fit our orthodox version of history so it's exactly. very difficult to get mainstream support yeah. to go and look at it and so you end up with people going out and just trying to take to do films and do their own thing and it, it i think there's some some evidence to suggest particularly in new zealand actually that there is some megalithic work but for me i'd love to see our scientific method be applied here and actually look at these sites with a with an open mind and try to evaluate it but for me the places we should really be looking because these are the ones that were probably inhabited by people and if you if you go along with the premise of an ancient advanced 
civilization in those pre-Diluvian or in those Ice Age times. It's the coastal regions. It's all those places that are now into about 400 feet of water or in that depth around in the continental shelves around um, around the world because those are the places that people would have been living. They would have been the temperate zones and yes. the, the warmer zones, and those are the ones that were most most hardest hit by the Younger Dryas, which was well, just a tremendous the, cataclysm. In the, the corner of the world I live in, which is southwest Turkey. Well, I mean, yeah, it's, it's all it's all about you. <laughs> It's you know I literally can see Koz, which is you know uh, yeah. very topical, which is a European island, uh, which is you know a short boat trip away, which um, you know, unfortunately a lot of uh, refugees have risked making that dangerous trip on their own uh, uh-huh. in recent years. But um, what I'm trying to say is that you know I'm on the uh, technically the Asian continent of, of or Asian side of Turkey, even though that it's just next to an island of Greece, which is obviously the European. Uh, continent or off the of European continent, but my point is that when you look out, there's a lot of amazing sort of, you know, mountain tops and, and islands, and uh, you know you can see into the distance in almost yeah. every direction, different types. But what I find very interesting is that around this area, many of the lower hilltops or, or mountain tops that you can still see, and that's relative to the sea level today. Many of them are rounded off. They're, they're soft in shape. They, they've been sort of hewn by the wind or by the elements or by the sea. Whereas if you sort of go above a certain altitude, and I'm not talking a huge altitude in different, different altitude, but above a certain altitude, they're all sort of, all the mountains and hilltops are very jagged as if they hadn't interacted with water. They hadn't interacted with you know, uh, wind right. erosion and so on. So one would presume that potentially the sea level was higher at a certain point in some distant times, and that's rounded off the the, the hilltops. Now, obviously, hilltops relative to what we're just talking about in terms of Hunger Dryas, which was 10, 11,000, 12,000 years ago, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, You did come up with an exact date just now, didn't you? What was that? that um, 12,800 years ago. 12,800. Yeah. But I mean, presumably, what I see now as perceived as an island was probably a hilltop or a small mountain right. above, you know, dry land because the sea would have been pushed out that much further because it would have been 400 feet further or lower yeah. than it is today. That's correct. Yeah, um, the, it it literally changed the surface of the earth, and it wasn't just the sea level rise that did this. There was, I mean, you're talking the other things that occurred during the Younger Dryas was biomass burning and by that i mean wildfires the likes of which we have never seen and i lived in both in australia and in california where i am now are both subject to really intense wildfires and bushfires but i mean this is these don't you couldn't even see these fires in comparison to the fires that occurred as a as a effect of the younger dryas we're talking about you know 10 percent of all the biomass in the world being on fire at one point and this is this is reflected in the in charcoal and in soot layers that are in sedimentary records that are again dated to specifically at that 12,800 year period, along with the megafaunal extinctions, things like that. It's um, yeah, it was it wasn't just sea level rises and in, as you said, the, the the surface of the earth was entirely different. But it was there was tremendous flooding, particularly in North America and Europe, as the glaciers, the great ice sheets of the ice age melted and were disrupted and they made their way into the oceans to to raise those sea levels and those scars the scars from that flooding are still they're still writ large across the planet in particular in north america there's uh 
channeled scablands of the eastern Washington state, for example, is just a tremendously just dramatic landscape. And, and you can see that's effectively been carved from the flooding that occurred when all of these glaciers made their way downhill into the oceans and raised the sea level. The Grand Canyon is one of those, isn't it? The Grand, there's a, the Grand Canyon, is, no, the Grand Canyon is, I think there's a combination of things going on. Randall Carlson has done a lot of investigation into the Grand Canyon, and I think there's a, a couple of different effects uh, going on there. And it, it's an interesting space, it really is, because there's a real battle going on in geology right now, and Randall Carlson is kind of at the forefront of it, because along with this this concept of the Younger Dryas, this, this, this ties back to these biblical not just biblical but many many other religions and cultures have flood myths and cataclysm myths and during the age of reason as you know scientific method and science was emerging and trying to separate itself from religion there was a, a very distinct and deliberate effort to to separate uh catastrophism and this concept of giant world ending floods and you know disasters from what 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 we could see the processes we could see at work in the in the world today things like gradual erosion uh and and those sort of things and for literally 60 years in the 19th century or thereabouts it was a stated goal of academic geologists to explain the world as we see it by something called gradualism which is the processes we see at work today gradual erosion rivers things like that eroding away that that if we can use that to explain the features of the landscape that's what we should do and you'll find that that's still the explanation for many of these geographical features in textbooks and things like that. And you've got guys like Randall Carlson out there and before him, uh, Jay Harlan Bretz is the name of the geologist who, who particularly looked at the young, at the channeled scablands in the Washington state and said, hang on, that doesn't make any sense up here. What we're looking at is the result of one gigantic catastrophic event and it's and and that's what it, what most elegantly and simplistically explains all of this destruction and all of these things that we see. And the evidence has just been mounting and mounting over the last 30, 40 years. And it's there's a real battle in geology between this concept of it's called uniformitarianism or gradualism and catastrophism. But it, it, at it, at its roots, it traces you know it's the battle for science to get away from religion. But as we go forward in time, we're finding actually there's yeah. grains of truth in all of these legends and religions. But and there was giant floods. Yeah. I mean, this scablands, the evidence that I've seen and certainly read about, um, some of the names you've already mentioned, uh, you know, the, the scablands, there are areas where an enormous, unimaginable amount of water oh. flows in a very short time from one point to another. And it's... there are, you know, potholes being drilled into, you know, bedrock from... You know, like, uh, uh, what can we say? Like a sort of a, I was going to say whirlwind, but it's not really the right, the right point. Is it? Vortex. No, a vortex, exactly. A vortex from yeah. water flowing over bedrock. I mean, this is colossal, Deep. huge rocks, oh. like not just rocks, but the size of a house or, or a bigger. bigger yeah. A bigger yeah. Absolutely. Um, and in fact, it's it's an item in this uh, talk uh, radio with pictures here. Number three, I think, is a picture that I took from, uh, I went up and flew a drone around it at, at the Channel Scablands. Then, I've been, before we, before we go yeah. there, we need to tell the listeners or remind them just where to find that. Also, we are coming up on a break in a couple of minutes. So I'm just thinking that what we should probably do is to invite the listeners to go to our website, which is theothersideofmidnight.com, Richard Hoden's theothersideofmidnight.com. Go to the show, which is uh, the show banner, which is the enigmatic Serapium drilling down no bull. 
And then below there, you can scroll down to find uh, a title, which is radio with pictures. And it, it kind of looks like a sort of a colorful icon with a radio transmitter. If everyone would like to click onto there, then we're all set up for after the break. We, we literally have uh, oh. Hello, Tim. Well, we have a couple minutes. You dropped out. The prior to event is because it's because what shall we say the mainstream archaeological view when the Serapium was created or what the purpose of the Serapium is mm. is in direct conflict with this absolutely proven uh, world cataclysmic event. So let's drill down and go into that. Very shortly. Indeed. So you're on the other side of midnight. The show tonight is the Enigmatic Serapium, Drilling Down No Bull, and our guest is Ben Van Kirkwick. alternative field you can hear this all the time you can see it in um, communications all the time with with the researchers that it's really tough to keep going keep this stuff afloat it's not mainstream yet although it's getting there and we'll talk about some of that tonight but it is tough and I want you guys out there those new listeners that are coming in those that are going to come throughout the night which I will mention is, is to think about very much joining club 19.5 now, what it gives you access to is all of the broadcasts that Richard has done since, I believe, 2015 um, up until now. And there's been a few of us guest hosts that have come in and helped out when, when we, you know, when he's needed us, you know, etc. And that's not only that, but you get perks that will that we've started, and we're going to do more just to keep it on the air. In Richard's case, he's a researcher, and he comes in twice a week working on this show and right now he needs a bit of time for himself so that's one thing I want you to think about another one is the donate button it's on the homepage um, the other side of minute.com it's on the homepage you can find it there please in your hearts think about a contribution whatever you can manage would be so helpful you can find the button also on each page on the left hand column um, it's, it's at the top and if you're using your phone you should be able to find that on your navigation Okay, well, guys, I'm just going to, can, can you actually hear me? Can, yeah, can you yes, me? yes, can we can hear you. We yeah, can hear you. I, I think just before the break, I was uh, attempting to join the dots, the dots and I was very rudely interrupted by Skype or my my, my feed. <laughs> I don't know which, but did you hear anything I said? I was just um, uh, a, a little bit of it. Was, yeah, the last sentence was sketchy. 
So our guest tonight is Ben Van Kirkwick, and we're having a conversation. If you go to the banner, the Enigmatic Therapian, Jolene Down, no bull. Ben, you were going to tell us about your item number three, but before that, Timothy, you want to repeat your last couple sentences? You were making a point, and it broke up. Okay, well, thank you. What I wanted to say was that the, the Hunger Dryers event, uh, this sort of you know um, planet-wide cataclysm, um, was kind of happening uh, at a time when mainstream archaeologists would have us believe that the Serapium was being used as a uh, burial chamber or something along those lines. And I just want to get into that subject matter uh, shortly. Wow, it's like the world and his dog uh, passing my studio this morning. Um, I'd like to sort of go into that conflict because it is an absolute conflict and there's a lot more information and detail to go into, of course. Right. So the, the, young, the Younger Dryas event is very... Um, yeah, it's an important point to, to it's an important point to connect with. Let's move on. Um, ben, you would like to start showing us some photographs, I think. So if we go to the other side of midnight.com, click on the radio with pictures banner, come down to Ben's section. And Ben, which one would you like us to look at first? Well, I, I uh, we can certainly show it. So one that is there, I think number one is an image of my website, which has all these videos if people want to check that out. But uh, for, number two is, is interesting, just to, just people may enjoy the story, but one of the sources, main sources of inspiration for all the work that I've been doing in this, and, and I think a guy that has probably lit this fire under so many people around the world is, is Graham Hancock. And in particular, you know, the book that he released in 1995, which was Fingerprints of the Gods. This was an absolutely, I think, seminal work that, uh, that, that brought to light the real mysteries and conundrums and contradictions that exist in the field of history and our orthodox version of, 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 of our past. And I had always been interested in Graham's work. I don't think I was, it was in the early 2000s maybe that I picked up his book when I was in my early 20s and I was following him and you know, I was interested in his work and I think I caught his, you know, his first appearance on the Joe Rogan podcast and I was purely interested in his historical research, but he, you know, he blew my mind with all of the stuff that he does around consciousness and, and, and psychedelics and the effect of altered states of consciousness on, on our um, perception of reality and, and, and the benefits that come from that, that type of thing. So I was doubly intrigued by what Graham was doing. And then, you know, having following him on social media, he said, look, I'm researching a, a new book, a follow-up to fingerprints of the gods. And this was of course, magicians of the gods. I think it came out in 2006 but he was uh, no later than that. He, it wasn't 2006. It was uh, 16. But he uh, so he was putting together a research trip to go down to South America, uh, Bolivia and Peru for two weeks, and said, you know, open this up to a small group of people that want to come with me. And I just immediately jumped on board with that. And I had the chance to travel with Graham through South America for a couple of weeks with a small group of people. Also, Brian Forrester was on that trip, as well as Jesus Camara, who's a local. A Cusco-based researcher that looks at the megalithic uh, work down there. And then several years after that, I got the chance to travel with Graham again through Egypt. So he's been a real source of inspiration for me over the years. Uh, I, I love the work that he does. I think what he does is tremendously important. And I think he's just a, a stellar human being. Um, I recently had the chance to catch up with him very briefly again at one of his stops on his recent um, promotion tour for his new book, which is America Before. But 
there's a picture, uh, number two, I think, of me and Graham at Karnak Temple in 2015. That's excellent. Well, I mean, Graham, Graham's book, Fingerprints of the Gods, I mean, that absolutely uh, that absolutely opened my eyes very wide. I read, um, I think, pretty much as soon as it came out in the mid-90s, and uh, I didn't put it down for about three days, I have to say, because <laughs> it just sort of, you know, it, it, all of those things I was imagining and so much more, you know, he had managed to sort of elegantly uh, sort of put together in a very sort of logical form and right. made it global, you know, before these sort of like ideas and things I, were think, I was thinking about imagining were sort of little fingers of information in different places. But he was, right. little fingers, there we go. But then... He, he managed to sort of give a global view um, and that led on to, you know, me, me reading a lot more uh, information about this. Hamlet's Mill was yes. a very dry read, but a very important read. I, I did persevere with it and I did enjoy it eventually, but it was just so <laughs> packed full of information about uh, procession and, uh, and so oh. much more. Yeah, but, Hamlet's... Um, sorry. No, I was just going to say... Did you, did you obviously? I, I imagine you, you came across that book. I have as well. Yes, in fact, I reference it in some of my work, as Graham references it heavily also in, in his book. And Hamlet's Mill, I think, is a very important uh, book. As you say, it's a little tough to, to get into and read, but uh, there's when you're making the case, as as Graham does, for uh, and the the idea that there's has been an, a high technology advanced human civilization in the past, and this was an idea he first floated in fingerprints. And by the way, this was also before we really had got our, our grip on things like the Younger Dryas. We had no real concept concept of, of of this event at that time. And I've got to say, he's been absolutely vindicated in those conclusions because science has really backed up all of his conclusions in those intervening 20, 25 years now. Uh, one, of the, um, one of the major aspects to this has been not only the the cataclysm, which I describe as just a huge clangor in the story of history, but also the extension of the human timeline in in that intervening period since that book came out and and in this last twenty years, we have extended our idea of how old the human race is by at least a third, and the ideas of when civilization actually started has doubled and tripled and gone back further and further. It just seems like the more we look, the older everything gets. And I'll give you an example is that, we previously thought that humans, you know, we had evolved and the earliest human remains that we had found put us at around 195,000 years ago. And it had previously been 150,000 years ago, thereabouts. But, you know, recently there's been a find in Morocco of human remains that puts us back to 300,000 years ago. And that puts us back as humans, modern day humans, back into, you know, warmer periods before the last glacial maximum. Uh, we've also done things like there's been the discovery of sites like Gobleki Tepe near where you live, Tim, that, that has, has pushed the origins of civilization much further back in time. I mean, we had always thought that civilization arose some five or 6,000 years ago with the ancient Sumerians in Mesopotamia. And from there, you know, it grew into the path through the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Romans, the, the, all the other Chinese dynasties, India, up to us. But with sites like Gobleki Tepe, we now push that date back to 10, 11,000 years ago. That site was deliberately buried at least 10,000 years ago. When you combine all of this with this, this idea of cataclysm and the idea that along with 
all the large mammals, I mean, you know, 50 to 80% of all the large mammals on the planet were wiped out in this cataclysm. This was a massive, massive event. We're a large mammal. We were certainly greatly affected by this event. We were most likely blasted back to the Stone Age and any traces of a, of a, of a civilization would have, would have been lost with it. And it just makes that case so much more plausible. So you, you take that background of these new scientific discoveries and then you take you, you you take that as a lens and you look that you turn that lens to the to the ancient sites and the conundrums and contradictions that we see on them today things like let's use an example the the old kingdom period in egypt now this is the first period of of the dynastic egyptian civilization it emerged directly from the stone age according to our orthodox historians some 5000 years ago yet it is the old kingdom where we find the most megalithic work. It's the, the biggest constructions, the, the, the most giant work. It's the stuff that boggles our mind the most. And there are so many contradictions in that story that just don't make sense when we think about, well, they were Stone Age one day, pre-dynastic, and they moved all the way up into building the pyramids at Giza within a couple of hundred years. And it just, it's a huge contradiction. That's not how civilizations gain capability. I mean, if you, if you consider that old kingdom period, the, Egyptian civilization ran for 5,000 years after that, and they never again reached the heights that they achieved in that old kingdom period. It's just not how civilizations work. But when you look at these sites through the lens of cataclysm and through the lens of extended human timelines, then all of a sudden this can begin to make some sense. And it makes sense in the context of we've been here before. We may have had, a, it may have been different technology. Sure. It might've been a different form of technology, but Technology, nonetheless, and maybe and even a different it, incarnation. You know, it's, it, it's, uh... exactly. It may not may not have even been particularly Homo sapiens as well. That's the other angle to it, right? We we know yeah. that we've got all these other Denisovians and Homo floresiensis. There's been many other discoveries of more and more complex, uh, I guess, hominids, and our our genetic past is way more complex than we than we previously thought. I mean, new, again, new but, DNA but evidence. And all of this, we're, we're still, I mean, I respect and I appreciate what you're saying, but all of this we're, we're measuring in yeah. the, with the filter of science. That's right. So, you know, we're still saying that, you know, we're giving this name, which these people at that time, they would not, not have adopted this name. It, you know, mm -hmm. it was not, you know, uh, we're giving them name through who discovered them or where they were discovered. It's not, not a question of the culture or understanding the, the living uh, people. Right. So... What, what I'm trying to join some dots to make a little bit of a, a gear change here is, is that, so the, let's talk about the, what is the mainstream um, accepted textbook view of the Serapium? Because we have all of this as a backdrop, sure. which I'm sure we're going to come back to. But yeah. what do Egyptologists, what does Zawi Hawass think the <laughs> Serapium is? Let, let's start there. Let's start sure. with... Um, I don't know what you call it in, in the uh, United States, but in the UK, we call sort of early learning books. It's like a ladybird book when you're at sort of kindergarten. Mm. You open it up and the cat's out on the mat. You know, it's very, everything's very simple right. to sort of, you know, start processes and start the programming of our, our children in education. And I, I don't mean this terribly rudely about Zoe Hawass, but he does seem to toe a very mainstream line, which right. seems to cover up all of the interesting points and, uh, Focus on all the other points which which basically um, justify the textbooks. So, 
What yeah. is the textbook view of the Serapium? Yeah, I, 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 that's a, it's a good point. I've actually met Zahi as well. Uh, I, was, I was there when he was supposed to debate Graham in Egypt. Uh, this is an interesting video on YouTube. But um, I, it's a, the Serapium, and we can get into what the site is and where it is a, a little later, but it, it's, it, it is dated to the Middle Kingdom, which is roughly 2000 uh, BC period of time is, I think, the earliest date that the Orthodox uh, Egyptologists give it. And it is classified as, uh, essentially, as with most, most things in Egypt, it's a tomb for Apis bulls. And the Apis bull was a, 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 a worshipped um, animal in the, in the ancient Egyptian religion. Uh, it was a holy animal. It was, it was tied to all sorts of different ceremonies and actually sort of national, um, national activities. It's quite funny. They had to, they had to they worshipped a sacred bull. And when that bull died... Uh, there was a search to find a replacement bull that needed specific colouring and all that type of thing. And supposedly at that period, nobody was allowed uh, to do any fornication or anything like that in Egypt during this period in the search for a bull. So you could imagine they were probably quite motivated to find a replacement bull. And the funny thing is, so they, they, they just, <laughs> and for, for, you know, for people that don't know what's in the Serapium, we'll get into that, but it's, it's, it's a, it's an underground series of tunnels that contains you know, 24 of these just gargantuan granite boxes. They're humongous, and we'll get into some details for those. But they were supposedly sarcophagi for these mummified remains of Apis bulls. Now, okay. what's, inter what's interesting about that is that they've never found any Apis bulls in the Serapium. And the name, the Serapium, actually comes from the Ptolemaic period, which is the, the Greek-Roman or the, 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 the Greek time in Egypt around 300 BC. And it had to we get the name from the worship of Serapis, who was, you know, a Greco-Egyptian deity who was who was essentially created in the Ptolemaic times, and it's a it's a combination of Egyptian and I think it's Osiris and um, and Isis. There's two. It's a combination of of characteristics from older deities, but the name itself comes from Serapis and the worship of Serapis, and that that name comes from the Greek influence on how we how we speak those words. It's a, you know. Cheops, Khufu, we get two different names for different things, the same things when you when you talk about Egypt, and that's because you have, you know, Latin and and, and Greek pronunciation for different things. But uh, Sorry, that's, but where, the, the that's where the that's where the Serapium story is. Or, or Greek interpretation of, of right. how somebody thought that two hieroglyphs would go together and how they may sound in, in present day or in, in current times. Yes, yeah, so how they again, so it was yeah. Yeah. So I mean it, again we, we think we know it, but in fact we we don't know it we don't know it at yeah. all. All we know is what somebody has told us, and we sort of, uh, you know, remembered it uh, through from our education, or, or you know, we refer to it through textbooks. It's the same thing with this hunger dryas. You know, so many people were yeah. saying it, it it didn't happen. It didn't happen. I remember there was a lot of conflict to accept that this you know big water flow happened. Right. I see a lot of similarities between that and obviously the. Um, and what I'm starting to feel is like the Egyptian cover-up, you know, it, it's... Uh... Right. So, okay, let, let's just so, point out what is the Serapium as it is today. I mean, so if, you, if it, you look, I think, in your radio with pictures, image number five... Right, is there's a map of it. ...place the same one as well in, in my section. So let's stick with yours because it's closer. Okay. Yeah, um, let me... What, I'll give you a quick overview. A map of a number of chambers underground with a tunnel system. 
Now, I, I've right. seen lots of people are saying different things about it. Some people are saying that, you know, it's perhaps even a, a map, a timeline. It's a symbol of something. It's an allegory for something and so on. But let's just right. say, let's just define what is it. I mean, it, it seems to be sure. a tunnel system. It's underground. Yeah. How so close it's, is it to the, How close is it to the Pyramid of Saqqara for a start? Good. Good question. So it's it is located at Saqqara. It's it's actually not very close to and Saqqara, and Saqqara is a region in between uh, Giza, which is you know everybody knows about Giza, the Great Pyramid, and to the that's to the north of Saqqara, and then uh, to the south of Saqqara is Dashur, which is the home for the Red Pyramid and the Bent Pyramid, and all these sites are actually part of something called the Sun Belt, which is many many pyramid sites, Abu Ghraib, Abu Sir, many of them dotted in a in a long line that sort of goes along the path of the Nile or where the Nile was supposed to be back then uh and the Serapium it's sort of set away from Saqqara itself a little bit off you can see quite clearly the the step pyramid uh in the on the on the on you know from the entrance to the Serapium it doesn't look like much from the surface because the Serapium is entirely underground and it's just a, it's a series of immense tunnels and galleries that and alcoves that have been hewn from the bedrock and it's not a some people have, have said, well, they, did they build this? Did they make the walls and build the ceiling? No, it's, it's been tunneled down into the limestone bedrock, which is what lays underneath most of the, the sands of the desert. Been? I mean, if, if you're going down the, the slope, I presume it's one of those sort of like shafts with, with like wooden boards. So you sort of no, it's, it's not like a pyramid descending shaft. There is, it's actually a stair, a broad staircase that takes you down oh, to a, a, a grand entrance. Yeah, and it's, it's these soaring vaults. Like there's, you're talking sort of, 10 to 12 feet wide passageways you could drive a car down them and they're okay. they're pre they're precision straight and but it's under in terms yeah, of underground i would say probably 50 60 feet and okay. this is the so top 50, layer 50 60 feet underground and it has a staircase which in my opinion means that it's meant to be visited it's not meant to right. be used to position something and then being be closed up and, and forgotten yeah. about I mean, it, it's meant to be visited right. That, I think so, for sure. And I think there was the evidence, and we can get into the evidence for how it's dated and what we think that the dynastic Egyptians were doing down there uh, a little later on. But there's some evidence suggests that that you know priests were actually selling some of the boxes to to for different purposes, and that has to do with some of the glyphs that are on there and the empty cartouches. Um, so there were people clearly using it, and I think the dynastic Egyptians were definitely using it. I mean, we we get the dating and we get the purpose of the site from. The hieroglyphs and you know we'll get into this in some detail sure. later but they you know they don't match the boxes they don't match the technology that's no, shown in the no. boxes however going into the serapium it's it's quite it's it's quite a it's an interesting experience you go in and the, the temperature changes you know you get that cool feeling and it's it's really dark almost immediately but these the tunnels are, are very impressive they're they're huge like just not they're 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 dead straight straight as an arrow and this in itself is a very um uh, it's a very good example of of high technology. This isn't an easy thing to do to make very straight passageways through bedrock with hand tools. And you have similar examples like the descending passageway of the Great Pyramid, which is you know accurate to within a, a quarter of an inch or something over 300 feet of being perfectly straight. Mm. Just an astonishing level of precision. And the same things reflected in the tunnels in the Serapium. Uh, hey, ben, in the help me out a second. Where is the way in? We're looking at this map. Uh, yeah, so it's on the left. It's on the right-hand side there. So if you see yeah. that, that long passageway. So what the, the interesting thing with this map is it does show the thing called the lesser galleries. So if it's that the lesser galleries are the, the vertical, looks like a bunch of alcoves in a circle on the right-hand yeah. side. If you just ignore those, 
the rest of this, the, where it says Grand Gallery and these other boxes, that's the Serapium. And the, the entranceway okay, so is that passageway to the right. So the Leicester Gallery, that looks like it was built to a different uh, right. master plan. It looks like it could have been built yeah. at a different time because it's offered on a different axis. It looks like it, it even goes under the corridor of... I, I believe yeah. there's, it goes under the entranceway. So that's the staircase going down that passageway to the right. Okay. And I think that the Lesser Galleries are very interesting because they weren't discovered until after the Serapium. They're not connected to the Serapium. They are nothing like the grand galleries of the Serapium. They're very rough hewn uh, passageways and alcoves, almost like they were copied. Like if you imagine the dynastic Egyptians had some sort of, you know, a fairly primitive ability to work with stone, then this was almost like a homage or a, or a, a copy of the Serapium, and it's in the in these lesser galleries. This is where we get the so-called proof for this this Apis bull worship, because in the lesser galleries, they found mummified Apis bulls, and they found them inside of wooden boxes. So no, no giant stone sarcophagi, no giant stone precision boxes, just that you know wooden boxes with mummified bulls. The bulls are still on display in the museum. And okay. from there, in this lesser galleries, they they then sort of smear that across the all of Serapium and say that's what that's what we're looking at. And they're and, in and my ben, mind, they're unrelated. Ben, how do you get into the lesser gallery? Do you go through the same entrance as the Serapium, or is, has, does it have its own entrance? No, no, it's, it has its own entrance. There it's, there's it's actually a completely different entity, right. which happens yeah. to be stuffed on the same map we're looking at, right. and. There is straight away uh, one of the points I want to make because we say the Serapium is probably used for the mummification, or not mummification, but the burial of bulls. Yeah. And yet the evidence of it comes from a completely different structure, a different entity on a different axis with a different entrance, which is just happens to be in the same bedrock close by. That's right. And there's, there also happens to be t some other tombs here. In fact, they found the Serapium as it was the entrance to it because it was near another small tomb. That what did have, you know, it was used uh, as as a burial tomb, and that's when they discovered, or Auguste Mariette rediscovered the Serapium in 1851, uh, near an entrance to a tomb. And I, look, even if you could, even if the ancient Egyptians were using the Serapium for Apis bulls, and there's not, you know, we haven't found any remains in there, but even if they were, to me that has nothing to do with the original purpose of this site, and it certainly doesn't, you know, it do, it doesn't it doesn't mean anything when it comes to who made the boxes, because in my opinion. Yeah. In my opinion, the, the Serapium itself and those boxes have been down there since long before the dynastic Egyptians ever arose as a civilization. I believe they, you know, they they found the Serapium, and there's a tremendous amount of evidence that they renovated the Serapium. Uh, the the writing dates the Serapium to that Middle Kingdom and then later on Ptolemaic period. When you say the writing, you mean the hieroglyphics? On the, the hieroglyphics boxes. on the boxes. Yeah, and it's like they're completely by a different yeah. hand than whoever created the boxes. They're, they're, in fact, I would say, or you've said yeah. yourself, is low quality, poor quality, or right. fast, rushed quality, as opposed to they're nothing like the same level of, of integrity or intent as the what you know, whoever created the original boxes. Yeah, and perhaps this is a good a good chance to look at another image here in this, and we'll we'll go up and down maybe a little bit here because if we skip down to number twelve, you can actually see an example of this again in the radio with pictures section uh, number twelve. It's an image of Yusuf pointing at some of the writing that happens to be on one of the boxes. Ben, and I think ben, I just yeah. introduce who Yusuf is for. Oh, thank because you. Because Carmen yeah. Bolt was on fairly That's recently, right. and I think there's a good connection there. 
There is. Thank you. And so, yeah, the, the, the fellow that I, I, one of my a friend, a good friend of mine, he's the best guide I would consider you could get if you go to Egypt. You should certainly try and find him if you go to Egypt. His name is Yusuf Awan. He's the son of Hakim El Awan, who is heavily featured. He was, Hakim is sadly Western now, but he, he's Yusuf's father. He was, he has been heavily featured by Carmen Balter and uh, in her series, The Pyramid Code. Uh, he is the source of knowledge force you know, Stefan Mailer, his books, The Land of Osiris. He's an indigenous, he's an indigenous wisdom keeper. He was the founder of the Chematology School of uh, Ancient Mysticism. And Yusuf is has been his protege and 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 obviously son for a long time. And Yusuf is just a fountain of knowledge. He's a great friend of mine. I've, 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 every time I go to Egypt, he's the guy that I go with and he's the guy I get to show me around. And uh, you know, that he he does a great job of explaining a lot of this stuff. Um, Yusuf's a very talented guy. And in fact, the music that you heard on break, that was also Yusuf. He's a very talented musician as well. Excellent, excellent. Well, I mean, so we have, we're coming up on the break. We have uh, two and a half minutes, something on okay. those lines. So let's just talk about these hieroglyphics because we have that photograph open in front yeah. of us now. Um, okay. Number 12 in Ben's section. So what are we so, looking at here? So there is first thing to say is that there are 24 giant boxes in the Serapium. Most of them are, are made of granite or cyanite, cyanite with uh, diorite as part of it. Very, very, very hard stone. Only three of them have any writings on them. Two of the boxes have only a little bit of writing on them. And then this box has, is written, has writing all over it. It's, it's, but the, the interesting thing about this picture, the reason I love it is that you can see the perfect straight lines in the construction of the box itself. And you can see the mirror finish, this, this mirror polish that's still reflecting light on these angles on the stone itself. And this isn't a natural property of granite. This is extremely difficult to achieve. And again, remember, these are single piece granite stones that probably weighed more than 100 tons uh, when they came out of the quarry. They had to be moved down into here. So you're dealing with good high levels of technology. And clearly, the builders were capable of making straight lines and cutting granite, yet take a look at the writing. The writing is just poorly scratched. It's, it's, it's barely made a mark into this granite. Uh, and, and this has been, you can tell that there's simply no comparison between the level of technology that's evident in the box itself versus the level of technology that's evident in the writing. And it's, it's from these writings and these glyphs that we date the site and we relate it to the dynastic Egyptian civilization and we date the entire, all the objects and everything in it. And it's, it's a huge contradiction. I, I, I can't imagine that the people that were capable of quarrying, transporting, and manufacturing this box and putting it down in this alcove were then challenged by the, the task of writing into it. These people had, had, had a vast capability of working with stone. I just don't think that was the dynastic Egyptians. I think this box was here long before them when the sure. dynastic Egyptians inherited it. So they wrote an on. analogy... An analogy could be to, you know, somebody building a beautiful grill building, let's just say you know, the Chrysler building or something, <laughs> and then mm -hmm. some guy comes along and puts graffiti on the side, and then, yep. you know, a few decades later we say, ah, oh, Kilroy yes. built the Chrysler building. And it's that's exactly that. right. Yeah, that's a good analogy. Yes. Okay, well, yeah. we're coming up on a break, Ben, so there's lots more to talk about, and ours already disappeared. So, uh, <laughs> Kintia, are you, are you there? Would you yes. like to take us into the break? Yes, you're listening to Richard C. Hoagland's The Other Side of Midnight, where the show tonight is the enigmatic Serapian, building down, no bull. We'll be back after the break.
TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com.